welcome back to make it make sense. Um, so, I, you know, when I first started this project, I had mentioned that um, some of it would be a lot of most of it would be podcast and interviewing other people, but some of it would be kind of a vlog. And this will be one of probably what will be several vlogs just because of what I'm going to share and what's happening in my life. Um, so I'm going to start with this one. And, and I will say that it, it it fits right in line with what this podcast is about. It's something that in my life doesn't really make a lot of sense. And I'm constantly trying to make sense of it. Um, but this one's just a little more personal. So um, I'm going to start at the beginning. So, um, you know, I have probably always been the workingest person that most people know. I, I said to someone um, today, actually, I said, you know, in a former life, I may have been an elf or maybe I should be an elf because I like to work. Um, I, you know, I just, if I'm, in, if I enjoy what I'm doing, I like to be busy. I like to work. I like the feeling of accomplishment. So, you know, to that end, I'm also a single mother of three kids and my life just seems like it's very busy and chaotic. And I, I almost don't know how to survive if it isn't. And so I'm always looking for a way to be superhuman or to like duplicate myself or find more energy. And so um, I've had some friends that have explored like pellet hormone therapy. And so like they insert like a pellet in your backside and it delivers hormones. They like do some testing to figure out what hormones you're deficient on. And they will give you hormone replacement. And essentially the people that have done it, that it works for have said it's completely life-changing. And so it just gives you so much more energy and you feel so much better. And so I was very intrigued by the idea. Um, but like not so much that I had actually done anything to like try to make an appointment or make it happen. I just had had an interest and thought this is something I think I would like to do. So then I get a random text message um, from a wellness doctor. Like he was a chiropractor, but like, you know, did a lot with like essential oils and things like that. And this was a doctor that I saw years ago um, when I first started in my current career, it, I met him at like a networking thing. And, um, but I hadn't gone to him for like a lot of years. Like in fact, 2018 would have been the last time that I would have seen this doctor. So a very long time ago. So it was very strange to get a text message. And basically it was just like, Hey, we're doing this kind of hormone replacement therapy at our office now. And if it's something you have an interest in schedule a consultation, come in and check us out. So I thought, Oh my gosh, like, like how written in the stars must this be? Because I haven't seen this doctor for five years. And so like, definitely the universe must be putting this in my path so that I can finally make moves on this thing that I said I wanted to do. So I schedule an appointment or I try to schedule an appointment. They weren't like super expeditious about getting back to me. And so it took a couple of weeks. I forgot about it. And then I get a call and I set up an appointment and I go in and I meet with a nurse practitioner or a nurse registered nurse. I'm not sure what she was, but she was super thorough, explained to me kind of how everything worked and then said, you know, before we get started, because it is hormones, we need to have a current mammogram and pap smear and blood work. And I said, you know, like now that I think about it, like, I think I might be actually overdue for those things. And I want to do it right too. I want to do it in a safe way. So I scheduled appointments for mammogram, pap smear, 
blood work and then my follow-up to actually have the pellet like insertion. So I go to my mammogram and it's pretty routine, but they call me a few days later and they say, um, like, we're concerned about an area and we want to bring you back in and have another mammogram and an ultrasound. And so I don't really think much of it because, um, like I have dense breast tissue. So there have been times when they've told me that they were concerned about it. And so I just schedule the appointment and I head back in and, um, again, I'm, I wasn't super concerned because I have had, you know, similar situations before. So I just, I like, I didn't even really tell anyone in my life about it. I just kind of went and they said like immediately after this ultrasound and mammogram, they said, you know, we're still concerned. So there's actually one spot we're extremely concerned about. And then there's another spot that is a little bit concerning, but it's this main one we need to check out. So we're going to do a biopsy. We need to schedule you for a biopsy. Now at this point, of course, like it's terrifying. That's terrifying news. And so I call my mother and I'm probably borderline hysterical and telling her like, I have to have a biopsy and I'm going to die. And this is like the first I've said anything to anyone about it. So at this point, I'm just carrying it by myself. And at that point I told my mother, um, the biopsy was a needle biopsy. So they do like a small little incision and then they like, I don't know, take cells out or something. So they, I actually had two biopsies because they did the spot they were super concerned about. And then the other one that they were mildly concerned about. Um, and they said it will be, um, five business days. So I think it was on a Wednesday, Tuesday or Wednesday that I had this done. And they said, it'll be five business days before you have results. Um, and so I was scheduled to go out of town for a work trip that weekend. And so I was like, I'm, I mean, I might as well go, what am I going to do? Sit here and like lament. And I hadn't asked my mom to come in. Cause again, it was like, I was going to have it done and then leave town. So I did it by myself. And then, um, went out of town, came back and true to form that following Wednesday, as promised, they called me when I was at this meeting and said, I was at a work meeting and they said, um, we did find cancer cells. So your next step is, um, we need you to schedule a consultation with a breast surgeon. So, I, of course, am beside myself. And um, so for anyone who knows me kind of on a more personal level, um, my mother was actually diagnosed with an inflammatory breast cancer when she was 39 years old. Now that was 26 years ago and she's still here and she's like a medical marvel and she's kind of the unicorn for all these oncologists, because someone, you know, that had her condition and her prognosis and just all of the things like it's like miraculous that she's here. So of course I got to see her go through all of that. So I might even be more terrified at this point than the average person, maybe not. Um, but I'd seen it kind of firsthand. So, um, I had gotten the results and I was supposed to go, that weekend home to Kansas city to just spend some time with family and friends. And I didn't feel like I was in any shape to do that. I mean, at that point, you know, 
I just wanted to be with my kids. I kind of wanted to get in bed and pull the covers over my head and just be with my children. So um, I canceled my trip. She, my mother came here and just kind of tried to keep me busy, entertain me for a few days um, because the soonest that I could get in to see the breast surgeon who specializes specifically only in um, breast surgery for oncology, um, I couldn't see her until the following Thursday. So my first takeaway about all of this stuff is that probably in the beginning, the most excruciating part of all of it is the waiting. Like everything's a hurry up and wait kind of situation. Like, you know, I'm <clears throat> waiting five days, five business days for results. Well, the whole time that's happening, of course, your mind is turning over a million possibilities. Then I'm waiting seven days or whatever it is to get in with the surgeon. So, um, you know, I definitely in those first days had a lot of like feeling sorry for myself. Like, um, why is this happening to me? I mean, because, you know, although I, you know, I think I can be healthier for sure. I, I know that there's like extra weight that I'm carrying around that I shouldn't be, and that's not healthy, but for all intents and purposes, I'm pretty healthy. Like I, I'm not hypertensive. I'm not diabetic. I don't have any joint pain. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I, I mean, like there's just not anything. And, and especially compared to like my friend group, you know, I, I will spend time with people and they'll complain about how their body hurts or how, you know, things like that. Cause we're aging. Like it's just part of life, right? You're, if you're lucky enough to age, then like some of this stuff is going to happen, but I don't have any of it. I have no symptoms. I don't take any medications. So like of all the people for this to happen to, this was pretty wild and kind of out there. Right. So I'm kind of, you know, feeling sorry for myself for a few days and I have, um, the appointment on a Thursday with the surgical oncologist. And so she takes a look at the mammograms. She does an examination. She feels a lot around my lymph nodes to see if there's any tenderness, because I guess it's pretty common when you have breast cancer, if it's moved to lymph nodes, that they'll be tender. I didn't have anything. I mean, I, I say to people all the time, like if I didn't know this was happening, I would not know this was happening. Like, I mean, there's just nothing. And, and to be really fair, I, I'm not one that's ever really, like I've been good about getting my mammograms and, and the way that it worked at least a hundred years ago when my mother was diagnosed is they want you to start having like regular annual mammograms 10 years before your parent was diagnosed. And so it was challenging at 29 to get people to agree, insurance companies to agree to pay for a wellness mammogram. But, you know, I've been pretty diligent about having this done. I don't, but I'm not good at doing a self-exam. Like, I just don't think I would really even know what I'm feeling for. I mean, once I knew what I was feeling for, I knew what I was feeling for. But before that, I don't know that I would have been qualified. I think you can probably have little weird like things in your body and and think that there's something or work it up in your head that there's something. So it's not something that I did 
with any regularity. Um, so I was just kind of relying on those annual mammograms. So anyway, have the appointment and it's a pretty rosy and unbelievable prognosis. You know, she's like the survival rate is 90 to 95%. Like this is absolutely treatable. Um, they cancer's like to a science now it's wild. Like they pull out this chart and it's like already done up. And it's like, if you have this, consider this. And it's just like an, like kind of like a choose your own ending book for your cancer journey. And so she's like, you know, based on the fact that it's, you know, really early and like that you could do a lumpectomy, you could do a mastectomy, like what, what are you, what are you thinking? And I'm like, based on what I've told you, what are your thoughts? And I said, well, it seems like a lumpectomy is the right thing to do. And she said, I totally agree. Um, you know, so the plan was to have a lumpectomy and then I would have like radiation and there are two different types of radiation. Now there's an external radiation that is, um, a lot longer treatment. So it would be like 20 rounds of this external radiation. And then there's an internal radiation that would be like two to five days, but they insert like a radiation probe into the exact spot where the cancer was and radiate from within, I think is how I understand it. But they don't know what, what um, candidate you are until the surgery. So before they can schedule the surgery, um, the next parts are, I had to have an MRI to just of both breasts to see if there was any other cancer that they hadn't known about. And then I had to have a BRCA test. So, um, years before my gynecologist had tried to encourage me to have a BRCA test, which is the genetic testing to see if. I had the gene for like a predisposition for breast cancer. And at, for a long time, I declined it because I just said, like, I don't know, like, once you know that you can't unknow that you can't unring the bell. And I just don't know if I'm really brave enough to like Angelina Jolie, this thing and like, you know, have a radical double mastectomy. I don't know if I would do that. So like, if I can't say that I would for sure be that brave, maybe I don't need to know the information because like, I don't know if it, I don't know what I would do. So I, I declined it. And then when I turned 40, I said, okay, like I'm, I'm ready. I'll do it now. And I said, but before I do this testing, does it test for whatever the gene is for inflammatory breast cancer? Cause that's what my mother had. And he said, it does not. And I said, well, then there's not any point in doing it because that's what she had. So like that answers the question. So I never had it done. Well, again, the hurry up and wait. So the BRCA test takes two and a half weeks to come back and they can't schedule a surgery until two and a half weeks until they have the BRCA results, because if the BRCA test comes back positive, it would change the direction. Like the surgery would then be suggested that you do a mastectomy, um, because it would mean that I had a very high likelihood of recurrence. So then they would just say, let's take the breast and the milk ducts and like the, I guess the places where cancer forms and just be done with it. 
So you're waiting again for those results to know when, what your next fate is. So I, um, then I have the MRI and, you know, again, so I'm, I'm like sitting with all of this information and, and I can tell you, like, I'm probably way too open and way too vocal and have been for most of my life. And this was something that, you know, I don't know if it was age or if it was just because of like how personal it is. I just wanted to kind of do things differently than I ever had in my life before. And so I really wasn't talking about it. Like I, I, there was my mom that knew, um, my eldest son knew because he was there when I was pretty upset the day that I first got the information. Um, there just was really on one hand, I could count the people who knew that this was happening. So I was very, um, quiet about it. And, and so much, you know, like so much changes just in that, like, diagnosis, like I, it really felt like kind of a scarlet letter that I was suddenly carrying around, like that cancer was going to make me, make people treat me differently, or it was going to make, I mean, obviously it changes everything, but it just felt like it was this scarlet letter that I was wearing around and I didn't want to talk about it. And I didn't want to give it any legs. So I just didn't. And I, and I, have always been so vocal. And so I decided not to be and not to overshare. And I just didn't talk about, didn't tell anybody about it. So I go to the MRI and my mom is gone now, but you know, because we're just waiting for them to schedule all this stuff. And for some reason, you know, I thought she, you know, she asked me if I wanted her to come for the MRI and I'm like, no, I mean, you won't even be able to be in there with me anyway. Like it shouldn't be that big a deal. I've had an MRI once before. Um, but for some reason, actually, being in that room, I, I got super just upset and, you know, an MRI, you have to like lay very still, still, and you have to like take, you know, kind of shallow breath and you, you're not supposed to move your body very much. So I'm like weeping while I'm having this MRI. And I just remember like tears just kind of coming down and I guess they would be like dropping down, but like my face is just wet. Um, but essentially you're laying in the MRI machine and you're kind of like, you have like a, um, bar kind of supporting your breastbone. That's just kind of like holding you there and your breasts are just both hanging into like this open cavity. It, it just felt like really degrading and very much, I, I, I didn't know how else to describe it other than I felt, I kept saying, I felt like a fish. Like it just didn't feel like a human for some reason in that process. And so I, I ended up actually being super upset when that was going on. So the results come back. I am negative for the BRCA gene, which is great because it means I don't have a super high likelihood necessarily of recurrence. And my kids don't have to be on super high alert for this genetic thing that I would have handed down. So that was a blessing. Um, the, uh, MRI came back and I didn't really know what this meant when they said it. Now I know a lot more about it, but they said the MRI comes, it only has the known cancer. So I thought, I mean, okay, like that's how they phrased it. And I just didn't really put it all together at the time, but I'll explain what it means in depth here in a minute. Um, so like that was what I knew. So then they could schedule the surgery. So, um, the surgery was scheduled for 
November 3rd. And I really had no idea what to expect. I had a lot of nervousness around the surgery because I, in all of my years of life, have never had a surgery. I've never been put under. I've never been cut open. I'm proud of the fact that I'm like currently sitting with all of my same organs. I mean, my children were vaginal deliveries. So like I legitimately have never been like cut open. So I had a lot of anxiety about what that would be like. Um, and so at this point I start telling a few more people in my close circle, what's happening. And when I would say it, I would say, I I would phrase it like, um, you know, I'm having a surgery or if I told them before or after the surgery, I would say either like I had a surgery on November 3rd to remove a cancerous tumor from my left breast Or I would say I'm going in to have a cancerous tumor removed from my left breast. So either way I would phrase it. And it was very common that people would kind of respond like, so, so what does that mean? Like, do you have breast cancer? Like they, and I, and I kept thinking like when I would end these phone calls, I'm like, am I saying it wrong? Like, is, am I not like portraying it correctly? And and I, and I, I mean, that's what happened, right? I have a cancerous tumor, which meant there was cancer found, which meant I had cancer. So like, I know I was saying it correctly, but I think what happens for people is when, when there's someone that they care about, who's in a predicament like this, they're almost kind of in that moment looking for any reason that it's not the worst thing that they think it could be. Like they want to hear, even though what you've said computes, they want to have find some reason that it's not really the worst outcome that you're describing to them. And so, so many times they would come back, well, does that mean you have cancer? And so I would be really perplexed. And I should say, I should go back to say like, cause I'm trying to find as much gratitude as I can in the situation. Cause it's just more helpful to me that way. Um, but I was overdue for my mammogram. So I had had it the January prior, which meant I was at about 18 months between mammograms. Um, however, again, in like a divine intervention kind of way, um, that happened exactly as, as it was supposed to as well, because had I had the mammogram in January, it would have been in my body for that much longer before they would have found it. And so when they found it, they feel like it was very new. And so I I just like so many things felt like they, it was really the universe kind of putting this in my path. And it was like this doctor that I hadn't talked to in five years that made me, they sent a random text message that made me get in touch, that sent me to this mammogram that like made me discover this. So it, it all felt very like cosmic in the whole scheme of things. So I, I, definitely feel very grateful for how all of that went down. But anyway, I go in for the surgery and I had told a few more people. So, you know, people were sending their well wishes and it was just myself and my mom. I mean, they won't let anyone be back there with you anyway. And I had a lot of anxiety. This is kind of wild because I traditionally have super low blood pressure, not low, but like average, like it's not, I don't really, I don't have hypertension. But whenever I go to a dentist, a doctor, just anything, it skyrockets. And these nurses will say to me like, oh my God, what is happening? Your blood pressure is insanely high. Is it 
always this high. Are you on medication? And I'm like, I'm not, I'm just, I have so much anxiety about even just being here. And that's how I felt during that surgery, because of course I had never been cut up open before. I was super concerned and they had sent you to like pre-surgery class and things like that. And they basically said like, it's outpatient. It's pretty simple. A lot of people can just take Tylenol for the weekend and it's like not a big deal. So I go in, I have the surgery. It is pretty like, you know, it's pretty simple. Um, I hate taking painkillers. I don't like how they make me feel. So it takes like, even after childbirth, I didn't take with, like, I always fill the prescription in case, but I, I don't like to take them. So I think I took medication that first day and it actually kept me awake. Like it did the opposite of what it was supposed to do. I was wired and like, couldn't sleep until midnight. So I'm like not doing that again. And so I just took Tylenol for the weekend. I felt so good that I was back and working and doing whatever I needed to do and told my mom she could go home. And I felt like I was good. So she left. Um, a few days later, I was like, I think of that next Thursday, maybe I was supposed to have my follow-up to get the results for the pathology. So they will take and actually like biologically map the tumor itself. And during the process of taking, um, I should say this. So before my surgery, I had to go for some, this sort of injection. And so essentially they take your areola and they would almost at like the 12, three, six, and nine positions of your areola, they inject like a super small, like pediatric needle and some kind of dye into your body so that they can kind of route where your breast sends things lymphatically. And so like, it could tell them what lymph nodes to look at or to take that would be potentially affected if there were any affected. And so they took five lymph nodes with this surgery. So they call me for the pathology results and it's a telehealth visit. And they want me to be in a place where they can actually see the incision to make sure that everything's healing correctly. And so they say, you know, everything looks good. And, um, you know, we took five lymph nodes and unfortunately four of the five lymph nodes had cancer in them. So again, no real idea what that means necessarily. Um, I think I even asked her at one point. So like, does that mean that that's what metastasis is? I mean, is it considered metastatic now because it left its place of origin? And she said, no, you know, technically it's still just a breast cancer, but it, it might like cause some more for some more testing and things like that. And so she said, um, now that this has happened, the doctor is going to want to have um, a, another, a second surgery. She's going to want to do what's called an, um, I think it's called an axillary dissection um, and take some more lymph nodes to see if there's more that's affected. So um, and I said, oh my gosh, like, and we're, we're now approaching like at Thanksgiving time. And so I'm like, can we please make this happen as fast as we can? Cause I just like to get on with things. Like once I make my peace with something terrible like this, and I'm just like ready to power through, which is kind of how I deal with adversity in my life. And 
So I'm ready to keep going on this. And I'm like, can we please not push this out any further? She's like, well, if they're able to squeeze you in, we could do it the 17th of November, but if not, it wouldn't be until the first weekend of December because, um, you're having, you know, she's there's Thanksgiving and she's going to be out for Thanksgiving. So I, um, beg for them to schedule it right away. And I go on with my day. She also tells me during this meeting, she said, you know, there is a marker that your lymph nodes would have if they were attempting to like affect other lymph nodes, if they were attempting to like spread the cancer and your none of your lymph nodes had those markers, which sounds like a really positive thing to me. So biologically that's a plus. So I go to work and that Friday at the end of the day, the doctor herself calls me after hours. And so she's like, how are you? And I said, well, I'm clearly kind of bummed. Like, you know, I don't exactly understand what this means. And she's like, well, you know, I'm totally shocked. The MRI did not show anything but the known cancer. And so that's what that sentence meant is that they were looking for cancer in the lymph nodes and they didn't see it on the MRI. So she's like, we're all really shocked about this. We did not expect to find any cancer in the lymph nodes, but now that there are four lymph nodes involved, we have to go back in and do an axillary dissection. And I said, well, so if like, if you found cancer in four of five, does that mean, do they go in like a sequential order? And that means that you're very likely to go back in and not find cancer in subsequent lymph nodes. She said, not at all. Um, there definitely could be more cancer. Um, I said, well, then how, how do you know how many more lymph nodes to take? And she described three things and it almost sounded like they were muscles. And she said, like, they kind of form a triangle and like, whatever's inside of that triangle is what we'll take however many more lymph nodes that is. And so I said, you know, can we please get this done? Like as soon as possible. And she said, yes, we're going to call the surgery center to see if they can fit you in on the 17th. And if they can, then we'll go ahead and do your surgery on the 17th. So that was, I guess a week would have been a, a week later. So I'm like, okay, well, so they call me back. They got it scheduled. Everything's good. So, um, trying to coordinate now, I was a little bit cocky going into the second one because the first one was such a breeze and I didn't have any reason to think that the next one would be less of a breeze because I had nothing to compare it to again, first surgery was, you know, a week before. Um, and so going into the second one, I thought, oh my gosh, well, I shouldn't make, I, I sh I'm not going to make a big deal about this because the first one was such a breeze. I don't want to panic a bunch of people, my family, for something that's just like, I, like I felt great. I felt like I could drive after the surgery. Like it just didn't feel like it was that big a deal. So I didn't want to make, be overly dramatic about it. So I didn't really tell anyone like my mom knew, and there was some scheduling conflict for her. And I think she probably felt just as like, you know, easy about it as I did because the first one was such a breeze and I was such an easy patient. So, and no one who matters like the surgeon nor her staff had alerted me that it would be any different or I should expect anything different. So I didn't, I told my mom not to come because again, she had some scheduling stuff and I was just going to have my eldest son take me. And it was, again, it was like a 
you know, 45 minute hour long surgery. And then I would be in recovery a short time and then I'd be home. So it just wasn't, didn't seem like that big a deal. And he kind of flaked and had some normal teenage stuff at um, the end. And so I'm super grateful that my ex-husband actually volunteered to take me to surgery. Um, so we went in, everything's pretty normal. Um, and I get to the surgery and I'm like prepped and the surgeon comes in and she tells me, like she mentions kind of offhandedly that I would have a drain. And this is the first that I'd heard about it. And so um, this was kind of upsetting just because having a drain um, complicates things. Like I, I didn't know to plan for it. Like mentally, you need to be able to plan for that. But logistically, you need to be able to plan for that because the drain is like hanging off of your body. It, it makes it impossible to wear most clothing. And so after the surgery, because of the drain, I was pretty much like just stuck in my house, like holed up in my house for 10 days until I went to the follow-up where they removed the drain be, and I didn't have any way to prepare for it. So I couldn't go to work. Now, again, I'm fortunate that I can work from home. Um, but I'm the kind of person that likes to go to an office. Like I find it valuable to get up and get going and go somewhere. And so to not be able to do any of that and just be stuck to work from home, some people would really love that. It's just not how I'm most effective. So I didn't know to prepare for that. That was definitely shocking. Um, and then I go into the surgery and I come out of the surgery and I literally woke up and I was in more pain than I've ever been in my life. Like I literally wailed, sobbed, like just was beside myself upset until they got the meds right. I mean, I said it was probably a half an hour. Um, my ex-husband who's sitting there, like, it's probably like a, when, when a baby's crying on a plane, like it's, it's like five minutes of crying, but it feels to you like an eternity because it's so agonizing to sit and listen to that. I think he, that was probably what he was dealing with, but he's like, oh my God, it had to be 45 minutes to an hour or an hour and a half. Like, I don't know. It was a long time, but I, I just think it was probably a half an hour. It just felt like an eternity, but I felt terrible because there are all these other patients waiting to go in and the recovery area is just like curtains between patients. And I'm sure they're all listening to this person a couple doors down wailing. And they're like terrified, like what the hell are they about to do to me? So like, I feel really terrible about it, but, but it took them a long time to get the meds right. And quite honestly, no one braced me for that either. So like shame on all these providers that it's their responsibility to kind of tell me what to prepare for. And I definitely got none of that. So that was like pretty upsetting. Um, so I went to, or I spent the 10 days and did the measurements of my fluids and like all of that kind of stuff. Then the follow-up was going to be 10 days later on a Monday. My mom came for the follow-ups because during the follow-up time, I was going to have three appointments that day, the radio, the radiation doctor. And I should say, I met with the radiation doctor at some point during all of this. And I said to him, like, I, you know, is there like, if they're going to add this, if they're going to add chemo on, cause that's what they had kind of like warned me that might happen now, if they're going to add that on, does it have to happen first? Can radiation happen first? Like what's the protocol? And they're like, well, we just kind of have always done it this way. So this is how we do it is what the radiation oncologist is telling me. 
And I'm like, well, I can't even get the medical oncologist to schedule an appointment yet because they won't do it until they have the results from the pathology from the second surgery. And I would just as soon keep things moving. So can we? So the radiation doctor said, yes. And I said, is there any like any like study to prove that having radiation first or second is more or less effective? Like, cause I don't want to put myself in harm's way, but like, if there's no difference, I would just as soon keep moving. So he's like, okay. So he schedules everything to keep moving. So that day, the Monday following, I was supposed to have the radiation appointment to get tattooed because they put three, I think it's three tattoos on your body so that every time you're radiated, they align where they're, you know, lighting you up. Um, so I was supposed to have the getting tattooed radiation appointment, the follow-up appointment with the surgeon and hopefully getting the drain removed and the first appointment with the medical oncologist. So, um, I go to the radiation appointment, they tattoo me, I leave. It's like not a big deal. Then I go to the surgical follow-up and I give her all of the feedback about how no one braced me for it. And I felt like it, those were things I should have been told. And, and I get it. Like these doctors deal with it every day and they, you know, it can seem mundane to them. And so I, I can understand that they, you know, probably forget that to the person on the other side of it, it's all brand new and it's all pretty scary. So anyway, I give her the feedback. She tells me that the second surgery, they took five more lymph nodes and there wasn't cancer in any of the lymph nodes, which is a very positive thing. She also had told me at some point, I think it was the night that she called me um, after hours at work. And um, she told me that they map the actual tumor and um, they give it a rating, like how likely it is for recurrence based on the biology of the tumor. And that mine wasn't just a low probability of recurrence. It was an ultra low likelihood of recurrence, my tumor. So another thing that seems completely amazing on the biological level, like it sounds like it's really great news. So I go to her appointment and I say, well, I'm not confident, like since there was not more cancer that I want to do chemotherapy. And she lectures me for a little while and tells me I need to meet with this oncologist and they're trying to make sure that it never comes back. And I need to go hear what he has to say and see how I feel about him and whatever. So I also say, I think I would like to meet with a, um, oncologist that specializes in breasts. Like if you're a breast surgeon, shouldn't I meet with an oncologist that does only breast cancer? And she tells me that that's not really a thing for the type of cancer that I have, that, um, there's one in Dallas that, you know, is considered a breast specialist, but she wouldn't meet with someone with my type of cancer. So I think it's probably a more severe case, I guess. Um, and she also tells me that there is, I think it's the N C C N that is the basic like standard of care for all types of cancer that like all the best doctors in the country come together X amount of times a year and they review all the new treatments and possible drugs and things that they can do for cancer. And they decide exactly what the protocol is for every type of cancer imaginable 
and every stage of cancer and all of it. And so she says, you know, people, there's a common misconception that if you go to MD Anderson, it'll be a better doctor that treats you or, you know, whatever. And she said, and the reality is like your doctors all trained at those hospitals. That's for sure. But if you go to any oncologist that's using this standard for cancer treatment, you're going to get the same answer, whether it's Houston or St. Louis or McKinney, Texas. And so she said, you know, you're, you're going to get the same answer wherever you go. And I'm like, okay, fair enough. So I go to meet the medical oncologist and, you know, I am one to question and ask questions and challenge. And I firmly believe in a situation as this one that you have to advocate for yourself. And if you're not brave enough, cause it is a scary thing. Like I had a meeting with the oncologist a couple of days ago where I asked a million questions and I kind of confronted him about this first meeting and where I think some things went awry and it's, it's scary. It takes, it takes being very brave. And if, if that's not you, that's okay. But I think you want someone with you who's your advocate that will ask questions and pay attention and like challenge if that's what needs to happen or just get clarification because this stuff is definitely, I mean, I'm learning more about cancer than I ever wanted to. Um, and I definitely did not, um, there's, there's things I did not know about cancer first, even though my mom had it. Um, and it should be said that my mother's cancer was in no way related to mine, which I think is kind of terrifying and that it, it probably points to if two, you know, relatively young females, um, are in the same family that don't have a genetic link to their cancers, both get cancer at a young age. That says to me that like, it's gotta be in the food we eat and the environment. And there's something about like what's happening in our world that's making this happen. And I did not see the tumor. I did ask to see it. Um, it gets sent off to pathology really fast. So my surgeon was less than amused that I asked if I could see it. Um, but I, I truly believe if I had seen it, it probably had the logo of my previous company on it because, um, you know, stress being such an important, like contributor to most disease, um, like, although probably other lifestyle things may have contributed, you know, or carrying extra weight may have contributed, but the reality is like, like I said, I'm, I'm super healthy. I don't, I just don't have like anything that I'm doing on a daily basis to abuse my body that would make it more likely that this would happen to me, except the stress that I was under in that really toxic environment that I tried to free myself from. But I mean, I was under that pressure and dealing with probably some of the worst people I've ever encountered in my lifetime. I, I mean, I think, you know, a company that, and this is a whole other subject, but a whole other podcast, but like a company that doesn't really celebrate success, like, or like, I should say success on behalf of like doing great work with your clients. They only seem to worship at the altar of like money and materialism. 
um, it, it attracts a certain kind of person. And so the, the amount of people that are kind of awful people and cutthroat, and I had a target on my back and just like all of it, like the amount of those people that I was exposed to for a long period of time, because I was sort of shackled there by my golden handcuffs of like how much money I was making, you know, I, I have to think that that contributed largely to this diagnosis. So we'll never know what caused it for sure, but I believe it was probably the stress, um, that I was under for so many years in that environment. But, you know, I walk into the oncologist's office now and I swear to you, I'm 30 years younger than everybody that's there. And I, I keep looking around saying like, I know that there are other people my age that this is happening to, like, where are they? Because it is a waiting room full of like 80 year old people who are like the phone, the ringers are on full blast and everybody's talking on speakerphone and it's kind of a comical situation, but like, I'm the only person of my age and in, in the room all the time. But I, I think what's more concerning is that it's packed all the time. Like they are just like, it's a revolving door of people saying that like cancer's like really, it, it's so prevalent and I wouldn't have known it like without this happening. I mean, you just live in your own bubble and you get tunnel vision, but like, there are so many people that are battling with this. So anyway, so I met with the medical oncologist and he probably already had notes to warn him that I was probably going to question him and challenge him because he definitely seemed like he came in poised for that. And he essentially remember when I first had the, um, the, the initial meeting, it was, Stage one, super treatable, not a big deal. You'll be wrapped up with this treatment by the end of the year. Like everything sounded great. Well, now I learn that the four lymph node thing ratcheted up everything like exponentially. And so there are three things that they're kind of pointing to, to decide like treatment and what this prognosis actually is. And it was the size of the tumor, the, um, type of cancer that it is. And it's a hormone positive, her two negative tumor, whatever that means. Um, and that it, um, the, oh, the four lymph nodes. So those three things, now turned what seemed like something that was super mundane into actually a stage three cancer. And they were going to add chemotherapy on and not just chemotherapy, but at a massive quantity. So I didn't know this. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't. There are lots of types of chemotherapy. I just always kind of assumed there was one, but there are multiple types of medication that they will give for chemotherapy. So we had like a list of them. There were probably like six or so on this list. And essentially the doctor tells me in this meeting that he will, because I'm healthy and can, my body can handle it, I will get like a more severe dosage 
of chemotherapy. Now, a couple things that are important. Like everyone's heard it said that cut the cancer out, right? We've all probably even said the phrase ourselves. That's because that that's factual. Like to, to the cure for cancer is actually to surgically remove it. So the surgery themselves, the surgery itself, after the first surgery, I was saying, and I was saying it like as a comforting thing to my mom. And because it was comforting to me, I said to her, when I took her to the airport, I hugged her and I said, do I look like someone who has cancer? And she said, no. And I said, that's because I don't. And I said it like kind of in jest, but like, it was like something that brought me solace that I really didn't at that moment have cancer. I currently don't have cancer. So that's the truth. And the surgeon has said that to me. He said, you know, the, the surgery, the cure for your cancer is to surgically remove it. And you did that. So like now we're trying to treat it and decide what treatment's going to look like so we can keep it from coming back later in your life when it's incurable. So he says, now we need to do basically a full metastatic workup. Now I was pretty confident that the metastatic workup would come back with nothing because again, I don't have any pain anywhere. Like typically people that have had metastasis, I, so I understand I'm not an expert, but they will have pain in whatever organ is affected. Or if it's spread to your brain, you'll have headaches or blurred vision, or they're just things that typically send people to the doctor because they're having these symptoms that I didn't have any of. And he kept asking me like, do you have any pain here? Do you have any pain there? Do you like, do you have any headaches? Do you have any blurred vision? So I don't know why he was asking the questions because even though the answer was always no, he still decided to do all the workup. So like it is what it is. So he schedules me for a brain scan, a bone scan and a, an organ scan. So three different scans that I have to do. And then he and I will meet after to see what the results are and to decide the treatment. So I'm obviously in this meeting, super upset about adding chemo on just because I mean, yeah, vanity, like it sucks to lose your hair and to look gaunt and sick and to vomit and like all of it sounds terrible. And I saw it with my mom. So I understand how terrible it is. I mean, we all know how terrible it is. We see people that are going through it often. And really the bigger kick in the gut is like going through all of that when you know that you currently don't have cancer, because it's not actually the cancer that is harmful or hurtful or painful. It's the treatment for the cancer. And when they're treating you, you don't technically have it anymore. Right. So that's like, that sucks. But he says to me, and he can tell that I'm super upset about adding on the chemo because I just feel like I don't have time for it. I mean, this all started because I wanted more time and energy. And now you're like going to ruin me for however long. And so like, I'm upset about that. And he says to me, and again, I, I chalk it up to, cause he's a very kind person, but I chalk it up to maybe being a little bit rattled by all of my like challenging and kind of questioning stuff and just like maybe losing his footing in the conversation. And, and, and it also is mundane to him probably because like I said, lobby full of people all the time, like he's dealing with lots of people and their cancers every day. And so it probably is very run of the mill to him. And he might sometimes lose sight of how 
traumatic or upsetting it might be for the person he's sitting across from. But anyway, he says to me, um, well, you're, I know you're super upset about the chemo. Like, let's just put a pin in that and go get these tests done because if it's metastasized, we're not going to do chemo anyway. And I'm like, what a shitty and terrible thing to say to me. Like that is not a consolation prize telling me if it's worse, we're not going to do this. So like, let's not worry about it right now. So I felt like that was kind of poor. I don't know if it was poor bedside manner or if it was just like a little bit callous or I don't know, but it really did not make for a great situation. So sets the appointment for all the scans. And that is why I'm doing this cast podcast now. Um, because I, I'm kind of superstitious and I didn't really want to, um, I didn't want to jinx it and I didn't want to come on and talk about it prematurely before we for sure knew that it hadn't metastasized. And so all of the scans came back clean and there's no cancer. So he said to me at my follow-up appointment that like, though you are, you're can like, you don't have cancer. And, and like, I, I probably know that I currently don't have cancer better than any of the people that are, that might be watching this because the reality is I've now had a full metastatic workup and they've looked at every single inch of my body to say that there isn't any cancer anywhere. Now it doesn't mean there aren't cancer cells because that's the tricky part. It's like cancer actually lives in all of our bodies. Like all cancer really is, are there wonky cells? Like if you've never looked at this on, you've never Googled it, healthy, robust, and well-shapen like cells, normal cells versus a kind of a deformed, like weird looking cell. And I guess these cells kind of come together. Everybody has them. So like in some way, shape or form, everyone has misshapen cancer cells in their body. It's just whether or not they go rogue and kind of congregate and create a mass or start wreaking havoc and trying to move through and destroy things. That's when cancer becomes a problem, but we all live with cancer on some level in our bodies, which is sort of terrifying. Um, but like I said, I, like I currently just went through two surgeries. So like my cancer is gone and we know it because they scanned it all. Like, so I know that I don't currently have cancer, but now it's a matter of treatment to try to make sure that I don't, it doesn't happen again. And again, I told you the, the lymph node thing was super positive and the mapping of the tumor was super positive and that's the biology of it. And, and the doctor even said to me, like, you know, the problem is the mapping or the biology of your cancer and the fact that it showed up in the lymph nodes. So like the pathology of your cancer are at odds. Like this one's really like paints a bad picture. This biology paints a good picture and they're at odds. And I said, well, so what does that mean? Like which one trumps the other one? And he said, we don't know. Like I have found, you know, I think in this process for me, I used to always think that doctors were just so much smarter than the rest of us. And I think they're smart for sure. But I I know I don't really any longer think that they're smarter than the rest of us. I just think they're trained for their trade, right? So like 
you know, lots of us could probably have been doctors. We just didn't head down that road. But what I have discovered with this particular disease is that, you know, 26 years after I first had my, you know, most close encounter with it was my mother having cancer. And we're 26 years later and here I am. And they don't seem to know that much more than they did, which, you know, cancer is the number one cancer that's ever diagnosed and how many people die from it annually. I'm not really sure of those numbers, but they just, they're treating it about the same as they treated hers. Um, the reality is the chemotherapy that they want to add on and the doctor confirmed they'll never know if it was necessary because the can the chemo is designed to kill any cancer cells that might potentially be in your blood and keep them from going elsewhere in your body. But they, they have not perfected the test to see if cancer is in your blood. So giving me chemotherapy is actually just a completely precautionary can never be confirmed if it was necessary or not procedure, which is really, again, a kick in the gut because it's literal poison that is put into your body, into your bloodstream. And it does everything to kill everything except the host. So like what a terrible existence and it's hard on your organs and it's, you lose your hair and you look gaunt, you can't eat and you get sores in your mouth and like just all of the terribleness. And they're talking about seven months, no, six months of chemotherapy treatments. So like a port and an intravenous like treatment right into my bloodstream um, every other week for the first half of the treatment and the second half every week. So like, you know, you're talking what, 18 treatments, really a lot of treat. That's a lot of poison. That's a lot of, you know, stuff. Um, again, for like, it's the part that doesn't make sense to me. It's like, it's a lot of treatment when you know, and it's confirmed you don't have cancer. So like all of this treatment for the what if is the part that's really, you know, tough. And, and I get it. Like if I were in a doctor's, an oncologist's shoes, if it's over treated and try to keep the person alive or under treated and, you know, they might not make it like I would probably over treat every day too, because it's better safe than sorry. So I fully understand it. And I get it. And I've like made my peace with it. And although I personally feel like it's probably overkill, um, even if it, there's a 1% chance that it's not like, I love my kids too much to, you know, let even 1% be the number and like to take that chance. So I'm, you know, being compliant and doing all of the things that they say, but it is tough. It it does feel like it's a lot and I'm not looking forward to the next seven months of my life because six months will be chemo and then the last month will be radiation, which everyone says radiation's a breeze. It it really just makes you tired. Um, 
but still just like seven months of not feeling yourself, seven months of not looking like yourself, kind of looking maybe a little bit night of the living dead. I'm not really sure. Um, so like, I'm not, I'm definitely not looking forward to any of that, but, but I mean, this is where we are. Like they, they don't know. And you know how you have these experiences where you find out you're pregnant or your partner's pregnant and you can't not see pregnant people everywhere or babies everywhere or every commercials, a Pampers commercial or whatever, how some things that you're like heightened sense of like consciousness and you're seeing it everywhere all of a sudden. It's the same thing, obviously for this, like I can't, I feel like I can't turn on the TV or my feed on social media or whatever, without hearing someone else who has cancer or died of cancer or was diagnosed with cancer or whatever. So it's like, it's kind of everywhere. Um, so, um, you know, I think that in this process, and this is just a very Lori way to handle it. Like I, you know, will handle adversity kind of always the same where I will, feel sorry for myself for a couple of days and I'll, you know, process it and woe is me and why is this happening to me? And I still have like an occasional chuckle about it. Like how ironic is all of this? Like I might as well have been drinking all the time and smoking and whatever, because it didn't matter anyway. Um, but I will kind of get all that out of my system. And then I just charge forward and I, you know, maybe it's not healthy and maybe it's like compartmentalizing it, but I just don't dwell on it. I don't talk about it a lot. I kind of live each day pretending that it's not happening. I just make sure I show up where I'm supposed to show up for these appointments. And then I don't spend a lot of time dwelling on it because otherwise, you know, lamenting about it and being upset is just going to be more harmful, I think. But I, I think that, you know, I'm not, I'm not a person who thinks everything happens for a reason, because if, if everything happens for a reason, I would have to understand why, you know, babies are abused or born with horrific diseases or animals are mistreated or any of it. Right. Like, so I, I just, I'm not one to say that everything happens for a reason, but I do think in every occurrence in life there is a lesson to be learned or there's something that if you're paying attention or you're trying to dissect it and, you know, really be self-aware and analyze like why it happened or what it was there to teach you, you know, the best you can do is actually self-reflect and try to take the lesson away because the worst the worst, most, um, offensive thing to do is just to hear something like this and go through your treatment and then go right back to everything that you were doing before. To me, that seems like a really wasted gift. So I'm not, I'm trying not to, to do that. I'm trying to make positive changes in my life and be healthy and be positive and keep myself moving and trying to correct whatever the things were. And, and I do think that I had already done so much of that by getting out of that toxic environment with the last company, you know, it was just such a sick place. And 
my personal relationships were tied into the workplace and it was just so much toxicity. And like I said, it just attracts a terrible sort of individual to work and survive in that organization. And I just wasn't cut from the same cloth. And so as much as I tried to free myself of that, I guess I just didn't do it fast enough. And I was under stress for a long time. And so I am practicing a lot of self-care and walking a lot and reading a ton and just spending time with the kids and trying to keep my hours to reasonable where before I'd kind of been at the mercy of clients and whatever their whim was, I'm trying not to do those things anymore. I'm still working a lot because again, it's something that I enjoy, but I'm just trying to set the right parameters around it and try to make the necessary changes because it would be such a shame to uh, so much of this has been written in the stars and the universe has tried to point me in directions. And I feel like this is like the next phase of that is where I'm being directed and what I'm supposed to change and do in my life to make sure that this doesn't happen again. And that the, the lesson wasn't missed. Um, so, you know, I think that it's scary to have something threaten your life and, and I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, I feel pretty positive that I will lorry the situation and give it my all and show up where I'm supposed to show up and do the things I'm supposed to do and that it will be okay. Um, so that's the, the positivity that I feel like I'm bringing to the situation. And I've been, you know, pretty right on so far about it. Like, you know, I probably, with all this self-care, feel better than I have ever. Like, I feel really good. Um, so I'm not looking forward to not feeling good, but, um, you know, it's, this is what, this is what it is. Um, so I will share little things along the way. I, I do think, um, probably my public service announcement so far in this whole thing that I, I feel like if you take one thing away from this story, it's that, you know, we as a society, are so uncomfortable with silence. I truly believe this. We hate awkward silence and you cannot be like, you just have to become comfortable with silence. And when someone is talking to you or sharing with you this sort of like heavy information, the worst thing that you can do is just try to say things to fill the silence when you don't know really what to say. And it's okay not to know what to say in this situation. But if you try to speak and you don't really know for sure the right words you should use, inevitably you're going to say something really stupid. And so there have been quite a few people that have said really foolish things to me. And I, I, I try to not get super upset about it. And I try to give them grace. Cause I, I understand where it's coming from, but like, you know, people like me saying, well, I found out that I have breast cancer and someone's first response being, oh yeah, my aunt died of breast cancer. And I'm like, like, why would you tell me that? Like, that's not helpful. You know, when people say to me, I was diagnosed with a cancer and I'll say, oh yeah, my mom's a breast cancer survivor for 26 years now. That's helpful. That's hopeful, right? But people will say really foolish things or I'll say like, I have hope because of this. I have hope because of that. And people will say, well, I don't know if that's true. 
that happened with my dad and he died right away. I mean, just like really foolish things. And, and again, I allow grace for it because I understand that they're just trying to fill, to relate and to fill the like awkward silence. But let me say this as my public service announcement. If you don't know what to say, just be quiet. Just listen. Because really, if you get someone like me to like open up and talk to you about it, if you say something dumb, I will not be angry with you. I will forgive it, but I will probably limit my time with you because I I like currently don't have a lot of room for that. And if someone says something dumb and they're completely unaware, they're probably going to say other dumb things. And I can't like make space for that. So be okay with the silence. Just listen and don't say anything if you don't know what to say, because, and it's okay to not know what to say. I don't know what to say most of the time either. My wires get crossed. Telling the story too much is like upsetting. Like I, I don't like to relive it. So, um, you know, there are plenty of people that I still haven't told that this is happening. And if they watch this, this, that'll be how they learn about it. And it's not for a lack of caring for them. It's just, I don't have the bandwidth to tell this story over and over again and still be okay with getting up and getting my kids off to school and making sure everybody's lunches are made and like making my life make sense. And that's what has like kept me grounded in all of this is just the day-to-day activities, the self-care and just trying to power through what is really in essence a very shitty situation. So that is my story. I will share more along the way as things come up, because I think hopefully if nothing else, I can be helpful to someone who finds themselves in this situation. And I hope that I can be helpful to anyone who's watching this. If you have, if you're not good about doing your annual maintenance wellness check, go do that. Like that is a hundred percent why I know that this was, I knew I found out that this was happening is because of a routine wellness visit. Um, so I'm super grateful for that. And, and in the work the line of work that I have, I'm always advocating for go do your checkups. It is far easier. And my treatment so far has not been a breeze. Like I said, the, the drain was a son of a gun. It hurt a lot to come out. The second surgery was the worst pain I've ever been in in my life. I don't even know what's in store for me. So I'm not looking forward to any of it, but I do know that when they find something sooner, your treatment can, you know, be more effective or less severe. Um, so, you know, get your checkup, whatever it looks like, man or woman, prostate or breast or ovaries or all of it, just go and do your wellness because, um, it's how I found out. So I am an advocate for mark your calendar, get yourself checked. So that's it. Um, that is my story. I appreciate you listening for anybody who's just finding this, finding this out. That's kind of in my closer circle that's finding this out this way. I'm sorry to share it like this, but it's just a little bit too much for me mentally to have to say it over and over and over again. And I, the more I tell it, 
the more I forget which parts I've already said and it, it all starts to become a haze and then it kind of affects my mood for a while. And I, I'm just trying really hard not to be in a negative space and just keep being positive and keep moving forward. So I hope you have a very Merry Christmas. Um, if you are the praying type, I'm all about more prayers. And if you're not, and you just can send good juju and good thoughts, I'll take all of that that I can get. Um, and yeah, so I'll, I'll share the journey with you as much as you want to know, as much as I feel up to sharing. Um, and so we'll see how I'm doing the next time we get on and do one of these vlogs, but I appreciate you listening, um, to make it make sense. This still doesn't make sense to me, but I know that there are lessons to be learned. So I'm focused on that. So Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. Um, and thanks again for paying attention. Take care.